You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Uh, we're going to be reading from Exodus 33, verse 1, through to Exodus 34, verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I'll decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, Lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out of two stone tablets like chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I'll write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. 
Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may gaze in front of the mountain, graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Thanks, Adam. Good to see everyone. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Darabin Prezi. Uh, there's an outline of my sermon, my talk from the Bible today, uh, on the welcome card that Beck mentioned earlier. You can find it on the website uh, if you'd like to follow along uh, with an outline. Uh, otherwise, uh, let's pray and we'll get into God's Word. Uh, gracious Father, uh, we thank you that you uh, love us and you want us to know you and uh, you want to know and love us uh, and therefore you speak to us and reveal yourself to us in your word. And so we pray, Father, for, uh, for ears that are ready to hear your word, uh, for minds that are ready to understand your word and for hearts that are ready to receive and embrace your word in such a way that even... In this moment, as we sit here in this gathering, we would be changed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, in 1987, U2 released their classic hit, With or Without You. Uh, maybe you know it if you're a child of the 80s, you know, you might, or maybe it's a bit of a classic hit, you know, the chorus, you know, with or without you, sing along if you like, with or without you, uh, I can't live with or without you. Okay, um, you get the song, right? Maybe if you haven't, you know, you can Spotify it later on or, or whatever. Uh, but it's a song, uh, I think a great song, exploring the problem that I suspect that many of us have experienced where you're in a relationship with someone that you feel you just can't live without. You love them, you're nuts about them, you're crazy about them, and yet you just can't live with them either. In whatever way, they, maybe they drive you crazy, right? And that song, uh, really, kind of that experience that we have with other people gives us a taste of the biggest problem that all of us have as human beings. And maybe you don't realise you've got this problem, uh, maybe you'll disagree with me, uh, but the, I think the reality is that the biggest problem that we have as human beings is that we can't live without the God who made us, and yet we can't live with God. Uh, in his commentary on the book of Exodus, uh, a guy named Tim Chester uh, points out that this is the exact problem that Israel is facing in Exodus chapters 33 and 34. Though they can't live without God, they know they desperately need God, they want God, and yet because of their sin, they can't live with God. 
So this is kind of a big idea. Uh, if you want to have your Bibles open, it would be really helpful. Uh, we're going to look first at Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 to 3, where we see that God is going to give his people all the blessings that he's promised them. I take a look there. You might remember, actually, uh, that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God called Abram at that stage, later to become Abraham. He called him to leave the land that he was in and go to the land of Canaan, Genesis 12, verse 1. Uh, but then in Genesis 15, verse 6, God said that, that uh, Abraham's descendants wouldn't enter the land of Canaan until they'd spent 400 years in a foreign land, where we learn later uh, to be the land of Egypt. God reiterated that promise through the book of Exodus to Abraham's son Isaac and then to Jacob. And here, Exodus 33 verses 1 to 3, God is saying that he's ready to fulfill that promise. It's a wonderful occasion. He's going to bring his people into the promised land. Remember, we ended last week at the end of Exodus 32, the golden calf and judgment. It was a pretty bleak ending. So here at the start of Exodus 33, it really seems like things are back on track. And yet there are a couple of hints that something's not quite right between God and his people. Uh, take a look at verse 1 there, you'll see uh, that God refers to Israel as the people rather than my people. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like God wants to keep his distance from his people a bit. He also says that it's Moses who brought them up out of Egypt rather than him who brought them out of Egypt. Just these little hints that God wants to keep his people at arm's length. He wants to keep his distance. Uh, but despite that, the overall vibe is pretty good. You'll see there uh, in verse 3 that God promises to bring his people out of the dry and arid wilderness that they're in around Mount Sinai uh, and to bring them in to a good and prosperous land, a land uh, that's kind of oozing, flowing with milk and honey, a wonderful land. Right? God will give his people all the blessings that he's promised them. Oh, but there's a problem, isn't there? At the end of verse 3, take a look at the end of verse 3. The problem is that God will give his people all the blessings he's promised them, but he won't give them himself. God will not go with his people. He says he won't go with them because they're a stiff-necked people, which is not because they need to see their chiropractor about a better pillow. That's kind of probably my problem. Maybe I've got the other problems, the other understanding of stiff-necked as well, which is to say the Israelites were spiritually stubborn and rebellious, stiff-necked. So God says he can't go with them because if he does, he might destroy them along the way. Because of their sin... Israel cannot live with their holy God. That's what these verses are about. So in verses 4 to 6, Moses delivers that really horrible news to God's people. And God's people mourn at the prospect of God not going forward with them from Mount Sinai. If you look in verse 4, you'll see that they find Moses' report to be really distressing. And maybe distressing, you know, uh, it probably underplays things a little bit. That word distressing can also, be, can also mean disastrous or devastating, kind of calamitous. Right? These guys are really distressed about God not going with them. Uh, they're in grief, they're mourning. Uh, so in verse 5, God says, take off all your ornaments, which on one level is just a sign of their grief. 
uh, because if you're it really just kind of overcome with grief, uh, it's just not really a priority to pretty yourself up with some jewellery. That's what these ornaments are. You're not sort of thinking about getting dolled up and going out on the town or something, right? Uh, but it's also a picture of their, their repentance. Right you can chase up, you can read Genesis chapter 35 later on if you like, uh, but there we see that taking off ornaments is actually a sign of repenting of worshipping idols. Because often putting on particular jewellery was a sign, it was something that kind of went along with worshipping foreign gods. It was all part of the package if you like. And so here the Israelites taking off their ornaments, verse 6, stripping themselves of their ornaments, uh, is an outward sign of their repentance. But if you look at the end of verse 5, take a look there at the end of verse 5, uh, it seems that God, at least at this point, isn't, isn't completely persuaded by their repentance. Is it genuine or not? Do you see at the end of verse 5 uh, that God is not sure what he's going to do with his people? The relationship between God and his people seems to be hanging like a thread. God could go either way. Because of Israel's sin, they can't live with the God. uh, Sorry, they can't live with God. They can't live with a God that they can't live without. They might be destroyed by him. And so they're devastated by that, filled with grief. Now, maybe you read these verses, verses 4 to 6, you see the Israelites' grief, you see their repentance, uh, and you think, gee, it just seems a little bit over the top. Like, what's the big deal? God's promised to give them wonderful blessings. He's going to give them all the blessings that he's promised them. The only thing he's not going to give them is himself. If that's, what you're, if that's what you're kind of thinking, oh, I think it says more uh, about the fact that you have a much too small, uh, uh, you have much too small a view of God. Or, or perhaps you don't even believe that God exists and that you've got a very small view of God. Right? You're, you're perhaps someone who's happy to enjoy all the wonderful blessings of living in this world that God has made. Maybe you're even someone who professes to be a Christian. You're, you're happy to enjoy all the blessings of being saved. Being forgiven, being at peace with God, being reconciled. Or you're happy to enjoy all those blessings, but if you're honest, you don't really give two hoots about God. You don't genuinely engage with God or enjoy God. You're like a kid on Christmas morning who eagerly unwraps all the presents that they've been given without giving a second thought to the people who gave the presents. You're quite content with all the blessings that God promises without the God who gives those blessings. As John Piper says, uh, the, the critical question for our generation, and indeed for every generation, is if you could have heaven, paradise, with no sickness and with all the friends that you've ever had and all the food that you've ever liked and all the leisure activities you've ever joined, uh, enjoyed and all the natural beauties that you've ever seen, all the physical pleasures that you've ever tasted, with no human conflict, no natural disasters. If you could have all of that, could you be satisfied with heaven if God wasn't there? You see, in verses 4 to 6, the Israelites kind of get it, right? They get lots of things wrong, the Israelites. But they get this right, don't they? They're not content with receiving all the blessings that God's promised. They want God. 
they know that they can't live without God. Uh, and so in verses 7 to 11, uh, God's people experience far less of his presence than God ever wanted them to, than God intended them to. If you look at verses 7 to 11, we can't unpack all the details, but I want you to notice the contrast between what God's intention was uh, of dwelling with his people in the tabernacle. Uh, you can listen back to a sermon from a couple of weeks ago, Exodus 25 to 27, what, God, uh, what God's intention was in the tabernacle in contrast to what's going on here with the tent of meeting. As you might remember that, that God gave Moses very detailed instructions for every aspect of the tabernacle and, the, and its furnishings. Uh, here, this tent of meeting seems to be a pretty makeshift job. You know, it's almost like Moses went, well, let's shelve the plans for the tabernacle a bit because of the whole golden calf thing. Anyone got a spare tent lying around? Right, let's just pitch that out. So, you know, like, it's a bit of a makeshift job. Uh, the tabernacle, uh, you remember, it was supposed to be pitched right in the centre of the Israelites' camp. Not this tent of meeting, right? It's pitched, look at verse 7, it's pitched outside the camp. The hints of distance are becoming real. God's intention with the tabernacle was that all of his people would be able to approach him, at least to some degree. But with this tent of meeting, it's only Moses who can approach the Lord. But Moses is able to draw near to God. God, it seems, is eager to draw near to him. The cloud of God's glory descends upon the tent of meeting so that Moses can speak with the Lord face to face. Which is not to say that God kind of literally has a physical body uh, and, and a face. It's actually a picture of the intimacy and friendship that Moses enjoyed with God, as such that they would speak face to face. Oh, not the rest of the Israelites, though, right? They're back at their tents watching from a distance, some distance away, verse 7 says. Because of their sin, God's people experience far less of his presence than he intended them to, at least for this season. And there's a whole lot there that I wanted to unpack. I don't have time. But it's interesting for us to think about, are we sacrificing some intimacy with God because of our sin? Are we missing out? We couldn't be any closer to God than if we tried in Christ and in his spirit. But our sin does still interfere with our intimacy with God. That's a, that's a question to think about. I don't have time to explore, but I'm happy to talk about it later. Well, Moses and the Israelites are far from satisfied with this situation. Right, so in verses 12 to 23, uh, it's like we get to eavesdrop on a conversation that Moses has with the Lord in the tent of meeting. That's what's going on in verses 12 to 23. Uh, we hear Moses, the mediator, the negotiator, the conciliator, if you like. Moses, the conciliator, pleading with God. Uh, look at verses 12 to 14. Moses pleads with God to go on from Mount Sinai, uh, both with him and with his people. If you look at verse 12, it's pretty clear that God hasn't given Moses the answer in light of verse 5. Remember, God said, haven't decided what I'm going to do with my people. Right? God hasn't give Moses an, Moses, given Moses an answer for that yet. Well, which of the people, if any, is God going to send with Moses on from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land? Moses isn't sure. It's clear from the rest of verses 12 and 13 that Moses understands that he's pretty special to God. 
Right? God knows him by name. He knows God's favour. He knows that God is pleased with him. Uh, but at the end of verse 13, Moses is like, well, what, what about the rest of the people? Right? Don't you remember, God, uh, that this whole nation belongs to you? All of them are your people. Uh, so if you're going to go on, move on from Mount Sinai, you've got to move on with all your people, not just with me. Uh, Moses must have been pretty, pretty bummed, verse 14, to get the Lord's response. The Lord says, my presence will go with you. That's you singular. You know, when we read the Bibles, it's hard to, to see that. But that's you, that's Moses by himself. And I will give you rest. Right? That's God saying, only you, Moses, will know the rest of entering into the promised land. And Moses is persistent, though. Right? He prays again, verses 15 uh, to 17, pleading with God to go forward, not just with him, but with all of his people. If you look at verse 15, if your presence doesn't go with us, right, don't send us up from here. Right, Moses knows the Israelites can't live without God. Right? If God's not going to go on with them from Mount Sinai, then there's just no point God sending them. Right, well, what's the point, Moses is saying? Uh, because verse 16, how will anyone know that you're pleased with me or with your people Unless you go with us, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? I think this is a pretty, I think this is a pretty incredible verse. Exodus 33 verse 16. What is it that makes Israel distinct as God's people? What makes them special as God's people? think, well, like Moses understands that it's not the fact that they have God's word. It's not the fact that they've been given the sign of circumcision or they've got a whole lot of different sacrifices to offer, different rituals to observe. It's not the fact that they're going to have that land of their own pretty soon. Right? Moses understands that the main thing that distinguishes Israel from all the other peoples on the face of the planet is the wonderful reality that God is with them. That's what distinguishes them. Right? That God has said to Israel, you are my special people, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And that's the same with us, isn't it? The, the thing that, that distinguishes us, that, that makes us distinct and special, is the fact that God is with us by the power of his Spirit, and that he assures us every step of the way as we live our lives uh, that we are his dearly loved children and he is our loving Father. That's what gives us confidence. I mean, that, that's the reality that gave the Israelites confidence to move on from Mount Sinai with their heads held high. And it's what should give us confidence to walk out these doors as God's people, knowing that the Lord our God is with us. Well, the Lord's persuaded by Moses' pleas. Verse 17, I will do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And so God agrees, yes, I'm going to go on with all of my people. Notice it's not because he's pleased with the people, right? It's because he's pleased with Moses. And so he'll go on with them. But Moses, it seems, still has some doubt. So he's not persuaded by God's agreement. So in verses 18 to 23, he says to God, show me your glory 
to prove that you'll go on with all of your people from Mount Sinai. It's almost like Moses saying, okay, I've heard your promise in verse 17, God. Now I want you to sign on the dotted line by showing me your glory. Right? Put, put, put something in writing. Show me your glory. A kind of visible manifestation of God's glorious presence, his character. Sometimes in Exodus it was the pillar of cloud. Uh, it was like that earlier in this chapter, uh, maybe a consuming fire, something that, that displays God's glory. Uh, so Moses says, show me your glory. Uh, and God says, I'm going to uh, let all my goodness pass in front of you. Which is God's way of assuring Moses uh, that despite his people's sin, he's going to keep showering them with his, with his wonderful goodness, his blessings, his favour. But they're still his special covenant people who he's bound himself, to, uh, bound himself to by making promises to them. He's going to be faithful to these promises. He's going to be good to them. And then God says uh, he'll proclaim his name to Moses. He'll proclaim his name, the Lord. If you've been with us through the book of Exodus, you might remember in the first time the Lord proclaimed his name to Moses was in Exodus chapter 3. That was also a time when he revealed his glory to Moses. Uh, he appeared to Moses in the burning bush and he commissioned Moses to save his people from Egypt. So I think we're supposed to see this encounter in Exodus 33 and 34 as a bit like a second version of Exodus 3 and 4. Right? God, again, is going to show his glory to Moses. He's going to proclaim his name to Moses. It's, God, it's like he's recommissioning Moses. He's saying to Moses, yes, I'm willing to restart, to start over with you and my people. Yes, the covenant was kind of hanging by a thread after the whole golden calf thing, but I'm willing to start over. And you notice at the end of verse 19, he's not starting over because Israel's cleaned themselves up or they're particularly good or moral or obedient. No, he's starting over because he's freely showing them mercy and compassion. He is the God who is free to show mercy and compassion to whoever he wills. And he's going to do that for the people of Israel. Uh, but he's not going to show Moses his glory. That's what he says in verse 20, isn't it? At least not the fullness of his glory. Which I take that, that's what it means when he says, I won't show you, show you my face, Moses, because no one can see my face and live. Which is pretty kind of God. Sometimes we don't know what we're asking from God. And God knows better. Well, I'll give you that, but you'll die. You know? And so God says, well, no deal. Uh, but in verses 21 and 23, uh, he does promise to give Moses uh, a wonderful glimpse of his glory. Right, he's going to hide Moses in a cleft of a rock and protect him by his own hand. Uh, and his glory will pass by Moses so that Moses can see his back, right? not, not his face. Which still, this is a bit difficult to understand. I don't think any of this is saying that God actually has a hand or a face or a back. But it is saying that in some mysterious way on Mount Sinai... God is promising to reveal his glory to Moses in such a way that Moses actually sees something. He sees something that's not the fullness of God's glory, but it is a glimpse of his glory in such a way that he's not harmed by it, he's only helped by it, encouraged by it, assured, in fact, that the Lord is indeed going to go on with his people from Mount Sinai, which is the whole point of this experience. It's not just a give Moses a kick of another great spiritual experience. It's to assure him that the Lord will go on with his people 
So how is that possible? How is it possible for the Lord to go on with his people? Just because Moses has been pleading with God, it doesn't mean that the Israelites are any less stiff-necked. They haven't magically changed. The Lord said just uh, not that long ago that if he went on with them, even for a moment, verse 5, that he would destroy them. Uh, So what's changed? How is this possible? Well, it's possible for the Lord to go on with his people because of three things. We see those in Exodus 34. Uh, The first of those three things is in verses 1 to 7. Uh, We see it's possible for the Lord to go with his people because his glorious character is revealed. Take a look at Exodus 34 verse 1. We're reminded in verse 1 that God is going to re-establish, renew his covenant with his people. That's why Moses has to chisel out a, a new copy of the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. You remember, Moses was pretty angry when he saw the Israelites worshipping the golden calf and he kind of went, smash, you know, broke the first set. Uh, And so God says, well, I wrote out the first set, you know, but you can do this second set since you broke them. I don't know, that's not quite what he's saying, but, but, you know, he does ask Moses to write them out. And then uh, you'll see in verses 2 and 3, Moses is going to have to uh, ascend Mount Sinai for the seventh time, the seventh and final time in the book of Exodus. Uh, So in verse 4, ascends the mountain, verse 5, God fulfills his promise from the end of Exodus 33. He comes down in his glory, he appears before Moses, and he proclaims his name to Moses, his name being the riches of who he is, the glory of his character. And I could do a couple of sermons just on verses 6 and 7, which I'm sure you'd love if I rolled into that right now. But... uh, I reckon if you want to explore it in more detail, a kind of bite-sized thing to do would be to read uh, the chapter on these verses in Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. I recommend that uh, uh, if you want to explore these things a bit more. But, but for, uh, for today, I just want you to notice two main aspects of God's glorious character in verses 6 and 7. God's commitment to displaying both his love and his justice. Love and justice, and notice the relationship, two things about the relationship between God's love and justice. The first thing to notice is that when God just begins proclaiming his name to Moses, proclaiming the glorious riches of who he is, the very first thing that he speaks about is his love. Oh, we shouldn't skip over that, right? Yes, God is just, that's there in verse 7. Yes, God will not let the guilty go unpunished. We saw that in Exodus chapter 32. But what flows out of God first and foremost towards his special covenant people, towards any sinful person who would come to him and say, I'm a weak and broken sinner, what flows out of God first and foremost is his love. His love expressed in his wonderful mercy and compassion and kindness and patience and forgiveness. That's the first thing to notice. The love of God is primary. And the second thing to notice uh, is that, uh, excuse me, God's love, you'll see there uh, in verse 6, is going to flow down to thousands of generations, which is God's way of saying his love for his people is limitless. His love's endless. His love's boundless. Dane Ortland says in his chapter, it's not like God is kind of, you know, counting out the generations and he gets to 1001 and goes, well, that's it, love's over, right? It's a picture, right? It's a picture of God's limitless love for his people. 
And how many generations does God's justice flow down to? Three or four, right? You see the picture. God's love is limitless, and God, in His love, limits His justice. It's a wonderful thing. It's possible for God to go with His people despite their sin, because when His glorious character is revealed, we see He's got this deep desire to show His sinful people grace and love and mercy. That's why things keep ticking over. Not because of anything special about Israel, but because of God's wonderful grace. Uh, It's God's grace, His undeserved favour, which in the rest of Exodus 34, verses 8 to 28, leads Him to re-establish His covenant with His people. Uh, In verse 8, you'll see that despite this incredible revelation of God's glory in verses 6 and 7, Moses again has some doubts. So he asks the Lord in verses 8 and 9 uh, for another assurance that he will indeed forgive his people uh, and that he'll continue to make them his special people, his inheritance. Uh, So in verse 10, you'll notice that the Lord doesn't kind of go, come on, Moses, how many assurances do I have to give you? Smack it, you know, wake out. No, he's pretty patient there in verse 10, isn't he? He assures Moses that he will make his covenant, renew or re-establish his covenant with his people. So in verses 10 to 28, there's actually a whole bunch of content from earlier in the book of Exodus. Why does God repeat all of this here? It's to remind the Israelites of their identity as his special covenant people. We're not going to unpack all of that because, well, A, we've unpacked it in earlier sermons and that'll be a bit repetitive. Uh, But B, you you guys can uh, listen to those previous sermons. I I recommend reading uh, the end of uh, Tim Chester's commentary on this. If you want to see how the repetition of these rules uh, reminds God's people of their identity. Uh, But the heart of this section is verses 12 to 16. So I just want to say a couple of things about verses 12 to 16. Uh, The Lord is reminding his people here, are reminding the Israelites not to make any formal treaties or covenants with the other nations in the promised land. Why is that? Well, because the Lord is like a loving husband. And as a loving husband, he is jealous to receive the undivided love and loyalty of his people. He doesn't want them prostituting themselves to the other gods in the land, being unfaithful to him. If he's going to recommit himself wholesale to them with undivided love and loyalty to them, then it just seems fair that he demands their undivided love and loyalty too. It's possible for the Lord to go on with his people because he's committed to re-establishing his gracious covenant with them. And third, it's possible uh, at the end of chapter 34, verses 29 to 35, uh, because his great conciliator, Moses, radiates. So if you look at verse 29, you'll see, well, verse 28, you'll see that Moses spends 40 days and nights in the presence of God on Mount Sinai. Then he comes down, verse 29, uh, and his face is radiating with God's glory. Uh, Only Moses doesn't realize it. It's like a kind of temporary afterglow for Moses, you know. He's radiating with God's glory. He doesn't realize it. So in verse 30, uh, the people and the leaders of Israel certainly do notice it, right? Because for them, God's glory radiating from Moses' face is terrifying. 
I remember this theme in the book of Exodus for a people who is sinful or impure or unclean or unholy, then the glory of God is dangerous. But in verses 31 and 32, with some kind of encouragement from Moses, the people do come over to him. He gives them the good news that their covenant, their special relationship with God is re-established. Then verse 33, he puts a veil over his face. And you'll see in verses 34 and 35, uh, that that kind of become Moses, becomes Moses' standard practice. So what's all this about? Well, you remember that, that, that God gave all those instructions for building the tabernacle. And at this point, it seems like those, the, the plans for the tabernacle have been shelved. Right, but because of the whole golden calf thing. And so here, it's like Moses has become a substitute tabernacle for God's people. Right, you remember in the tabernacle, God's people had to be protected by a whole lot of curtains and veils and barriers. And that, 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 those were the things that protected them from God's glory radiating out. Likewise, God's people here have to be protected from his glory radiating from Moses' face by this veil. A curtain, a barrier over Moses' face. Right? Israel's biggest problem was that they couldn't live without God, and yet they couldn't live with God. And God wonderfully solved that problem by revealing his glorious character. Uh, by re-establishing his gracious covenant and by radiating through his great conciliator, through the work of Moses. I started by saying that this isn't just a problem, a kind of ancient problem for the Israelites. Well, that's nice. This is a problem for every single human being. How do we live with the God that we can't live without? And the wonderful news of Christianity, right at the heart of Christianity, is that God has solved that, our biggest problem, through Christ, His Son. He solved that problem. And we've seen in previous weeks that Christ is like the ultimate Moses, the fulfillment of Moses. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to flick to the New Testament. You can look at Mark chapter 9 from verse 2. You'll see in Mark chapter 9 from verse 2 that like Moses... Jesus also goes up a mountain. Uh, He goes up a mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. Uh, And when he's up the mountain, he's gloriously transformed, right? He's radiating the glory of God. And what do you know? Moses turns up along with Elijah. Uh, But despite Moses and Elijah being there, what does God the Father say from heaven? He doesn't say, listen to Moses. He says, listen to my son whom I love. He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Right? Jesus is better than Moses. He's the ultimate Moses. He's the one who radiates God's glory, not just temporarily, but eternally. The one who doesn't just go up the mountain and bring God's word. He's the one who is God's word. Which is why John, who was up that mountain with Jesus, when he's writing his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 14, says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Right? Pitched his tents, tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is what like, like, Moses saw God's glory on Mount Sinai, when God proclaimed his word to him, right, his name, 
Notice that. He saw God's glory by hearing God's Word. God's Word, which revealed God to be full of love and justice, right? Full of grace and truth. You see what John's saying in his Gospel? He's saying that when we hear the Word about Christ, the ultimate Word of God, we too can see God's glory. We can behold His glory, and when we behold His glory in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that He is full of of love and justice, full of grace and truth. And at the end of John's Gospel, we see that that ultimately Christ displayed God's glorious love and justice in His death on the cross. For in His great love for us, Christ laid down His life to bear the just penalty for our sins on the cross. So I've got a couple of verses there. In Mark 15, verse 34, you'll see... Uh, that Jesus, the, the one who radiates God's glory, who has been in the glorious presence of God his Father for eternity, in Mark 15, verse 34, we read that he's cast out of God's presence. He cries out to God his Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is Jesus cast out of his presence, uh, because, God's presence? Because of his love for us. In his great love, he wanted we who deserve to be cast out of God's presence, who to be, uh, to be distant from God, like the Israelites, we who deserve to be cast out of uh, God's presence to be drawn into God's presence. Which is why a couple of verses later, Mark 15, verse 38, at the moment that Jesus dies, the veil in the temple is torn in two. They're saying he's saying that Christ uh, bore the just penalty, displayed the full justice of God on the cross, paying the just penalty for all our sins, being cast out of God's presence, so that by faith in Him, we can draw near to God's presence, so without any need for some protective veil or curtain or barrier, like the Israelites needed to be protected from God's glory. No, we can come with boldness and assurance and confidence into the presence of God our Father. And we can live with the God that we cannot live with without. The God who brings us joy and hope and peace. Well, let me pray. Our gracious Father, we we thank you for your word. Uh, These are Wonderful passages uh, that I'm not sure that I've done justice, but I pray that your spirit would bring uh, your word home to our hearts and minds uh, in such a way that we're changed by it. Uh, We praise you for our glorious Lord Jesus, uh, through whom uh, we can live with you and have you live in us indeed. Uh, We pray in his name. Amen.